Oh, that's good. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. Hey, that video that you just saw is giving reference to a big event happening around here called the 4C Us Marriage Retreat. And in your sermon notes on your seat, in your message notes, there's a little half sheet of paper that'll tell you a little bit more about it. But bottom line is, is Friday night, February 10, and Saturday morning, February 11, we're hosting a marriage retreat for 50 couples. We're not quite full, but we're real close. And I'm asking you to make an investment in your marriage this year. What if this year was a year that your marriage had greater vitality, stronger connection, more fun, and more focus on God? So at this marriage retreat, what we're not doing is therapy. We're not beating up men. What we're going to do is have a lot of fun, and we're going to talk about some important things. So if it's been a while since you've made a tangible investment in your marriage, you are overdue. And this $50 registration fee, if you can't afford it, we'll pay for it. All you got to do is talk to somebody at the guest services station in the lobby. But this $50, which is typically less than you'd spend at a pretty decent restaurant for the two of you. And if you have kids, like I have four kids, it's certainly less than we ever spend going out to eat. It would be an amazing investment in your marriage. And if you've never done anything like this, or maybe you have in the past and it's been a while, this is for you. One more time, you want to do this. Now, let me tell you something that's really, really, really exciting. This relates to the marriage retreat. It relates to small groups that I'm going to tell you about in a second. As of today, we're instituting a brand new policy that I've been so excited to work on and get ready for you. And I want to tell you about it. Because of the generosity of the people in this place, beginning this small group session, we're offering a child care reimbursement for every family that participates in small groups. So if you sign up for a small group and you have children and your children can't go to the small group with you and you want to hire a babysitter, we will pay you to do that. We literally will reimburse you. We've set aside a sum of money out of our budget because we believe that what happens in here on Sunday morning is great and a lot of fun. But if you don't get face to face with people and talk about life and talk about God and talk about biblical principles, you won't grow spiritually. You'll be one year older chronologically, but you'll probably only be a month older over a year spiritually. But if you'll get into groups and talk, you'll have exponential growth. And we know that childcare can be a major barrier to that. So next week when you come in, on your seats, all that information on how to take advantage of that. So what I want to tell you about right now is the small group catalog that was on every other seat, if you want to pull that out. It looks like this, the winter catalog. Small groups are the lifeblood of this place. Three times a year we launch them. It gives people a chance to get on and to get out of groups. We acknowledge that life changes over the course of a year. But in this catalog, you're going to find basically two categories of things. There are small groups where people get together in smaller groups, talk about biblical content, get to know one another, pray about things. And there are small groups. And then there are events where people can just connect and have fellowship and do some stuff. All that information is right in here. And today you have an option and one easy step to sign up for a small group. All you do is take that connect card that you filled out earlier. And at next step C, you simply transfer the number of the group you're interested in or want to sign up in right onto that connect card at next step C. So for instance, if I'm looking here at page one and I see that there's a group for men discussing last week's sermon, I simply write SG small group 09 on next step C. And then this week you get an email from one of our uh, team members to tell you more about that group and give you the details. It's that simple. And if you need to get childcare, next week when you come in, you'll discuss 
discover exactly how it is our church, generous people here, will literally pay you to get childcare in your home so that you can be a part of small groups. Here's why we're doing that. We want to remove every obstacle we can so that you can make this your best year of spiritual growth ever. And if you don't get in a small group, that will not happen. I know I do a great job on here on Sunday mornings. Thank you for that. But it's not enough. Thank you for laughing. It was meant to be a little facetious. But it's not enough. Circles are better than rows. Conversation about biblical truth will transform your life. And we want to make that very, very easy for you. All right. So today, we're beginning a new message series called Games People Play. And I want to talk to you about the game that you saw right up here. In fact, it's right back here. Connect Four. How many of you played this game as a kid when you were, yeah, we, we have kids in our house. We have a, actually a couple of sets of this game in our closet. And from time to time, we'll pull it out and we'll play some, some games there. And in our house, I'm the champ. There's nobody else from my family in the room that can't dispute that. But in my house, I'm the champ. And I like Connect Four because it requires a certain amount of strategy. And I like to play very young kids who haven't yet figured out the strategy. That's how I'm the champ. When my kids got older and better, I refused to play with them. That's how that works, all right? It's, uh, so connect four, very simple. You got to get four in a row, right? But the strategy involved is all about how to make sure that the first piece of plastic you drop and the second piece of plastic you drop stay connected together, and then you've got to get four in a row. And the message series is called Games People Play. We're just looking at relationships. And today, I want to talk with you about the basic need we have to be connected, being connected is a very basic human need. God has designed so that you and I are, have a desire and have the ability and the opportunity to connect with other people. One of the first things the Bible says about humanity was it wasn't good for man to be alone. And all through the Bible, there's the story of a family that God is knitting together. Individual people brought together in close relationships because it's in close relationships that our lives find fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and joy. And it's in close relationships that we tend to grow the most. I don't know if you know this or not, but God wants to use the relationships in your life to help you grow spiritually. God wants to use the relationships in your life to help you grow spiritually. So he's given you in your heart, in your mind, in your way of looking at the world, he's given you a basic desire to be connected. This is the desire to be connected is what takes a, a smelly middle school boy who doesn't care what his feet smell like and he doesn't want to take a shower. And one day you notice when he comes home from school, he cleans himself up. Before he goes to school the next day, he pays attention to his hair. He brushes his teeth. He might even throw on a little bit of deodorant. Or if he's like a lot of middle school kids, he coats himself in Axe body spray. <laughs> what makes for that transformation? It's very simple. He wants to be connected. And those things that didn't matter to him all of a sudden take on new importance. Because he wants to be connected. Friendships. Romantic relationships. Parent to child, husband to wife, we're bound for connection. And yet, connecting is not that easy. It can be quite complicated. It's a basic human need, but it doesn't come easy. And like the game Connect Four, if you're going to connect well, 
there are certain strategies that you can pay attention to that will help you connect. And the message today really unfolds some of those. And I want to talk primarily to followers of Jesus. But a lot of the principles we're talking about today, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, can apply to you. But if you are a follower of Jesus, these aren't just pieces of good advice. This is wisdom from God's word on how we can live the life he's called us to live. Knowing that connection is a need we have, and at the same time, it can be a challenge. It can be a little complicated. God has deposited in his word, the Bible, tools for us, wisdom for us. And I've just pulled six principles today that we can look at. But the beginning of your message notes, I want us to start with a guiding verse, Ephesians chapter 4, right there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he writes, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We're one family. Every Christian around the world, one family. But in a local church, even more so. That's why in the Bible, members of a local church addressed each other as brother or sister. They had this language of family that talked about the connectedness. In fact, that's God's favorite metaphor to describe just how connected he wants people to be. Family. So he calls us sons and daughters. He gives us permission to call the folks that we're sitting next to, whether we're blood-related or not, brother or sister. Yeah, God has designed for us to be connected. In fact, he wants us to some degree to operate like a family. And maybe not your family of origin because I don't know the health of that family, but like a healthy, well-functioning family so that the connections are real. So that you have somebody who understands you and you understand people as well. So that you have people who really love you and will go to bat for you. And you have that same commitment of love and loyalty to other people. So people, so someone, so a small group of people at least, really know you. They know your favorite color and your birth date and what you like to eat. And they, they know you. You go beyond friendships and there's a closeness. And you really get to know other people. See, the Christian life is a matter of belonging, not just believing. It's a matter of belonging, that's our first blank, not just believing. Every week I ask people to put their faith in Jesus and to believe what Jesus says about the world is true. To believe that if they will put their trust in his work on the cross and in the empty tomb, they can have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. I ask people to believe that. That's just the front edge of Christianity. On the back edge of Christianity is a deep belonging and relationship. God wants you to have friends. Friends who, in one place in the Bible, describe it, friends who stick closer than brothers might even stick. Throughout the last 2,000 years, where the church has prospered, it's prospered because people decided they were going to do relationships the way the Bible described relationships should be done. And where churches are dysfunctional and not working, nine times out of ten, it's not a theological problem. It's an absence of putting into practice the truth that God has revealed in the Bible about how relationships should operate. So how do you get connected? What are the strategies for making it happen? 
Let's talk about that. Number one, here it is. Take initiative and don't be afraid. Take initiative and don't be afraid. Most of us in this room have lived long enough to know some of the pain that comes as we try to connect. You've been lied about. Somebody has betrayed a trust. Somebody let you down. You were in a relationship, maybe in a marriage, and it fell apart. You know the pain of connecting. There's a basic fear in most of us to some degree or or other about connecting to people. Fear is just a part of life. And we have fear because we're afraid of pain that might come into our life. You see this in the Bible. The first time Adam and Eve had sinned against the Lord, and the Bible says that God came down to talk to them. And here's what Adam said. I was afraid, so I hid. And in that phrase, I was afraid, so I hid, we see one of the major obstacles to connecting. People are afraid and they hide. People will visit our church, and this is appropriate. We, we welcome this process people can engage, but they'll come and they don't really want to connect. And they'll hear me talk about a marriage retreat, and they know they need to go, but they don't want to go because they're afraid of the relational side of what's going on. And so they hide. I think what's at the root of that is basically what we're saying is if, if I tell you who I really am, if you get to know the real me and you don't like the real me, then I have no more alternatives. I mean, if you don't know the real me and you don't like me, then I have a certain buffer to deal with that. But if I show you the real me and you don't accept it and you don't, evaluate, you don't value it the way I'd like to be valued, well, that hurts very deeply. And so our fears then make us very defensive. You can see this in relationships, right? Moms and dads. Kids know they messed up and it's time to have a conversation. And so you start talking to them and they're defensive about their behaviors. Now, John, we've talked about homework before. John just happens to be my kid's name, but it's not an example for my family. I'm making it up. But he's not in the room. Let's all agree we're not going to tell him about this, all right? So, John, we've talked about homework before. But, Dad, I was really busy today. Really, John, you're 14. You're really busy. And this seems to be a repair. All right, so even if you're busy today, why over the last couple months have we not gotten it done? And you see the defensive thing kicks in. Some of you are bosses in different companies and different works. You have people that report to you, and sometimes you got to deal with stuff, don't you? And you see a certain amount of defensiveness. Why? Fear. It's understandable. Our fears will keep us distant. We don't want to let people get close to us. We withdraw and we hide our emotions. It's difficult to be open and honest. We've been hurt before, and those hurts aren't enjoyable. And because we so desire connection, when we get hurt along connecting lines, it really, really hurts. And so our fears make us defensive and distant, and sometimes our fears will make us very demanding. We're insecure, so we try to control things. And you've seen a relationship, I'm sure, some boyfriend-girlfriend thing where person A always has to have the last word and they're really demanding about what they want. That's just a symptom of fear usually that's going on. But the good news is, is God has called followers of Jesus to live free of fear. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is where the Bible describes that perfect love will drive away fear. 
The antidote to fear isn't simply courage, although it often is. But the antidote to fear for the follower of Jesus is the perfect love of God. And his perfect love for us can embolden you to step forward to connect more with his family. It can. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, here's what Paul writes. For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, Paul writes, his prisoner. Rather, join with me, connect with me, even in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You don't have to be afraid. I know we sung the words just earlier, but you don't have to be a slave to fear. My hope for our church over the next few months as we launch these small groups is that you will step past your fear, your insecurity, You'll put off your distance. You'll let go of defensiveness. You won't have to have it all your way. You'll quit being a little less demanding. And you'll take initiative to connect with other people. Healthy churches are connected churches. And healthy people are connected people. But you might have to step over a little bit of timidity and fear. I know you're an introvert and I'm really like dancing on your last nerves with high heels. I get it. I get it. But... God did not design for you to operate in fear and shame. And so from time to time, you got to step forward. And it could be that you have to step forward in this marriage retreat. But you don't have to, like, share your stuff. We're not going to sit around the circle and say, I struggle with this. That's not, not one moment of the time. But you will have an opportunity to hear some great stuff and at least talk about it with your spouse. But you might have to step past your fears. Number two. If we really want to connect, here's a strategy. you got to make allowance for the fault of others. you got to make allowance for the faults of others. There's no perfect person on this earth, including you. Now, years ago, there was a column in most newspapers around the country called Dear Abby. And it's shifted over time. But basically, you would write Dear Abby your life's problems, and she'd write back and give you some advice. Years ago, somebody wrote... A divorced woman wrote to Dear Abby and said, I'm 44 years old, and I'd like to find a man my age with no bad habits. So Abby wrote back, so would I. <laughs> it, just, it, it doesn't exist. And if you're going to connect, you have to make allowance for the faults of other people. This is about being considerate. It's about looking out for them. If you're relationships, if your connectedness has to be defined because the person you're connected with never is going to let you down and is never going to demonstrate the darker side of their personality and is never, ever going to have a sin or a fault, you're not going to be able to connect. It's a false, unrealistic standard that you're holding. So Philippians chapter 2 says, look out for one another's interests, just, or not just your own. See, when we hold that standard so high, what we're saying is if, if I can find the right quality of person, they won't hurt me, they won't disappoint me, they won't let me down. And there's a certain amount of wisdom to that thinking. But just how high is your bar? Here's what I have found. We tend to judge ourselves by our intentions. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I know the word came out, but I didn't mean to do that. But we tend to hold everybody else to their behavior. I don't care what you meant. That word was offensive. 
We tend to judge ourselves by our intentions and everybody else by their behaviors. But we're challenged in this Philippians passage to not just think about what we want, but to be considerate of other people. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. You must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, God forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now, of course, there's boundaries here. You're not a slave, and neither are you a stepping mat. You're not a doormat, of course. But somewhere between an incredibly high, unrealistic standard and being taken advantage of in some kind of codependent relationship, there's a balance that the Lord calls us to. But you're never going to engage a person who is not flawed in some way. So here's something I try to keep in mind. Ben, the world does not revolve around you. I say that to myself from time to time. It's not about you. As a leader, sometimes leading can go to a person's head. I was reading the Bible a few months ago, and one particular passage jumped out at me. It was the time when Moses, one of the greatest leaders of the Bible, like if Moses is gone, we're in trouble. The Bible says that God takes Moses on a mountain, and that's the end of Moses' life. He's dead. And the very next verse goes like this. So Joshua rose up and led the people of Israel. And I felt like this impression, like, yeah. So leadership's a big deal, but I'm not a big deal. The moment Moses was dead, God raised up another leader. And it's important to say that while you're loved by God, you're not so important that you shouldn't consider the people around you. In the leadership experience once, I was uh, challenged to put my hand into a bucket of water. Five-gallon bucket, put my hand in. And the idea was, is as I pulled my hand out, what would happen? Well, immediately the water around would rush in and fill the void left by my hand, almost, almost you know, imperceptible to the naked eye, of course, maybe even slow motion video. But there's not going to be a moment that if I'm gone, my hand is out of the water, that something isn't going to rush in. You are important. You matter. But you're not so important that the needs of other people don't matter as well. And when we keep that in mind, we, allow, we will allow ourselves to be human and we'll allow people around us to be human. Yeah. If you're in a relationship, they're going to disappoint you. But the Bible says that that reality doesn't have to be a game ender for the relationship. There's something called forgiveness and grace that we're called to. So take initiative and don't be afraid. Make allowance for the faults of others. And number three, this is a huge one. Be constructive with your words. So the big passage in the Bible on this is Ephesians 4. And it's the passage parents give to their kids when they hear them say a word they're not supposed to say. And I guess that's appropriate. But there's so much more to this passage. So let's read it. And we're not just going to deal with curse words here, all right? Here's what it says. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. The word unwholesome is defined by the following words. Unwholesome words are words that don't build up, that aren't sensitive to other people's needs. That's what makes curse words thrown about to hurt people so offensive. It's not just the word or the imagery that they conjure up, although that can be disgusting and offensive as well. But it's what is the intent of that word thrown so forcefully around? Well, it's not to build up. It's not to be a gift to them. It's literally meant often to tear them down. 
And the Bible says that among Christians, this should not be the way we talk. Now, of course, we all do that from time to time. I'm not saying you all drop the F-bomb from time to time. I'm not saying that. But from time to time, our words don't build up. So how do we kind of deal with this? How do we get constructive with our words? Four quick thoughts. I think that if we want to get constructive, we can stop excusing and realize that what you say impacts people around you, that words matter. Because of that, here's number two, we might be able to talk less. Talk less. Now, listen, don't go home today and say to your spouse, Ben said you should talk less. I'm not talking to your spouse. I'm talking to you, all right? I'm talking to you. You know your words are like a power tool? And when you've got like a really jacked up power tools, I'm into tools. I love tools. A few years ago, my family bought me an entire set of, you know, 18-volt lithium battery, cordless drill, uh, um, driver, saber saw, circular saw, flashlight, and radio. Like, best Christmas ever. I'm just... Almost moved to tears even thinking about it. They know me. They know me. I love power tools. Here's the cool thing about power tools. You don't have to use them as much. For instance, if I have to screw a screw into the wall, I get my little number two Phillips screwdriver out, you know, and I'm turning and I'm turning and it takes me a while. But if I put the power tool on it, zip, and I'm done. Right? It did take them, here, that's the power of word. Words are like power tools. And the truth is, is if you're careful with your words, you don't have to talk as much. Now, some of you are like me and you're a verbal processor. And that's fine. You just have to be careful with where you verbally process. But for many of us, one of the ways to get constructive with our words is to realize that words are like a power tool. And one of the reasons we get in problem is we talk too much. Number three. While we're talking a little less, let's listen a little more. If I listen, I can understand. If I listen, I can understand. In the Bible, it's, in the Bible one of the phrases that Paul gives to the uh, understudies that are under his leadership, and he's developing them, he says, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And when you do that, the implication is you'll be slow to wrath. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So stop excusing, talk less, listen more. And when you're doing all of that, here's number four then, start building people up. Ask yourself, what does this person need? How can I use a word of encouragement to build them up? How can I give a word of challenge in a way that the challenge I offer is actually a gift? In the Old Testament, there was the Tower of Babel. These people all got together, they spoke one language, and they were going to build a Towers so tall, they thought, that they were going to reach the heaven and go where God was. And the implication is, if we can get where God is, we can control this thing. Well, that really ticked God off. The idea that we can manipulate God to control him. So what did God do to confound them? Did he take away their saws and hammers? Uh-uh. He affected their language. Because language is powerful. And when you understand that your words are powerful and you can use them to build up or tear down, you're well on your way to connecting in more healthy ways. I can't tell you the number of church environments I've been in over the years where I've seen people speak truth, but not in love. And it destroyed. And what they said was real and honest and accurate and probably needed to be said. But the way it was said, the manner in which it was delivered was very, very unhealthy. And I've been guilty of this. I bet you've been guilty of this. But our words are powerful. And if you'll remember that, you'll be able to be constructive with your words. 
Now, the fourth one here is one that, for me, if I had to pick the top six that I think is most important, they're all important, this is the one. Number four, offer and receive candor. Do you know this word? Candor. Last year, when I was sitting around with my uh, leadership team at the church, one of the goals we established for our team and for our, ultimately for our church is that we would raise the level of candor. We felt like sometimes we would leave meetings and there was stuff left unsaid that should have been discussed. And when we were discussing about the effectiveness of our work, sometimes the level of conversation stayed surface and we didn't drill down. And especially when there was some ugly or potentially ugly most often, not really ugly but could be ugly, when there was some potentially ugly relational stuff that might happen, it was in those moments especially that we didn't share the final 2 to 3% of what needed to be shared. But candor is essential to connecting. Being candid and connecting go together. Relationships are built on honesty, not flattery. And some of us have been married 10, 20, 30 years, and we're still dealing with the same problems for decades because candor isn't valued in the relationship. If somebody starts to speak the truth, somebody gets very offended. Or more often, the truth is shared in a way, going back to our last point, that's a little hurtful. It comes out in the arguments only and never with an intentional conversation around how do we deal with this recurring problem in a better and healthier way? That's candor. So all of us have blind spots and the question then becomes, do you have anybody that loves you enough, committed to you enough to talk to you about this? Years ago, my mentor gave me two pieces of advice that I hold on to like gold. He said to me, I throw these out to you, you can do with what you want them. He said, go ahead and set aside 3 to 5% of your income every year and spend it on your personal development. Buy books, go to conferences, you are worth investing in. That's what I would say to you about your marriage. Your marriage is worth investing in. If it's 50 bucks, doggone it, I'll write you a check today. You're worth investing in. Your potential, your life is worth investing in. I have never regretted spending hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars a year on my personal investment in me, listening to people talk about how to do life better. The other thing he said was, you have blind spots. So you need three or four people around you that will tell you the truth. Now, as a leader, he said, you'll have hundreds, but don't listen to hundreds because hundreds have agendas. But two or three people in your life will sit down with you and there'll be a level of honesty and transparency about you. And they'll share with you what you need to hear and love. I can't tell you the number of problems I have averted by listening to people who care deeply about me and took the risk to share things with candor. And they were careful to how they packaged it. And they were careful to be for my good. And they laid their agendas on the side. And that didn't just happen. It happened because I asked people to do that for me. Again, I've had people come out of the woodworks offering. But there are people I've strategically asked, will you help me do this? There are people who functionally serve that role whether I ask them or not. In our church, it's our board. They get the permission to tell me whatever it is they want to tell me, and to some degree, I have to engage that. That's good for me. But beyond that, there are three to four people, a couple in this church, who literally will sit down with me and I'll say, I'm just, I just need perspective. 
And I, I know what to do. Put the seatbelt on because here it comes. Because about 80% of what's going to be shared is me. It's not it. It's not the situation. It's not her. It's not them. It's not the, you know, it's not the church. It's me. It's candor. Here's how you make candor work. You compliment in public. You correct in private. Let me tell you the phrase we landed on around here. Public praise brings private influence. Here's how you know who you can bring into your inner circle. If they compliment you on occasion, and I don't mean overflattering, they have potential to be in your inner circle. But if they can't give words of encouragement, they cannot be in your inner circle. They just can't be. They can be in an inner circle. They can't be in the inner circle. Words of encouragement and understanding that compliments in public and correction in private is the way every healthy relationship works. One of the things I respect most about my dad, my dad was a strong disciplinarian. I'm not saying I respect that the most. We had some rough moments. It's probably good for me. But here's what I respected. He always corrected me in private. I could be around a bunch of guys doing a bunch of stuff, and he'd say, hey, let, let, let me talk to you. We'd go off to the side, and he'd correct me. Even in front of my siblings, I got corrected in private. And there were the occasion when I needed it in the moment. But nine times out of ten, let me tell you what that did. That made my receptivity to my dad's correction dramatically higher. Nobody likes to be called out in a group. When I was in high school, or when I was teaching high school, I learned... I'm having a problem with the dynamic in my classroom. If I try to correct the whole class, if I try to engage, that's going to go south. But if I can pull one or two people out and we can have a conversation, it might go well. I'm always embarrassed when I'm with couples and either the husband or the wife digs at the other. And it goes beyond the playful banter. That's actually kind of fun on occasion. But it goes into corrective words. You're like, whoa, that got really awkward. I don't like that. You ever been with a couple and she or he is always correcting the other person? You know, the other night, well, it wasn't the other night, honey, it wasn't the other night. It was three weeks ago. All right. Three weeks ago, we went to the store. It was about five miles away. It wasn't five miles away. It was seven miles away. It was seven miles away. We went to the store and, and we bought, da, 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 we bought, you know, and we spent about $35. We did not spend $35. We spent $35.32. You ever been around that? Compliment in private. Or compliment in public, correct in private. Number two, correct when people are up and not down. I've learned with my kids that there is a season that they're more receptive to correction. Now, there are times when we have to do it. But when they're tired, when they're already feeling defeated, it's very easy to pile on. But it's very almost always inappropriate and more importantly, ineffective to pile on. And number three, Never offer correction until you've proven that you're willing to be corrected. This is the beauty of those that have, I've decided to let into my inner circle. There's a mutuality. There's a mutuality. It goes both ways. It's not just receive. There are people in my life who have that function, and it's fine. But those that are in the inner circle, there's a mutuality. And they've demonstrated that not only can they speak with candor to me, because we love each other, because there's a true connection there, I can speak with, with candor to them. And those are the relationships that you want to cling to. That's the ideal dynamic in every marriage. And there's such a value and a respect for one another and a willingness to listen that when something needs to be said, it can be said freely without a lot of buildup. Here's a big problem. 
A lot of us are very straight shooters, we tell ourselves. I'm a very straight shooter. I've just learned when people say that, careful, just be careful. Just be careful, because they are. But here's what usually happens. Life's going along, and they're getting a little agitated. They're at level one. And at level one, they're not a straight shooter. And life goes on. And they're a little more agitated, and they're at level two. But at level two, they're not a straight shooter. And life goes on, and it's level five. And at level five, they're not a straight shooter. You, you know where I'm going with this? But things ratchet up, and now we're at level eight. And at level eight, they're a straight shooter. It's almost as if they have to get angry to talk with candor. This is an ugly dynamic, and it's repeated in many marriages represented in this room. That's why you need to come to the marriage conference. Right. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? You've seen it. You, probably, you might work with this person. Oh, they're a straight shooter. But by the time they start talking straight, they're angry. There is no intimacy without going through some conflict. Candor is an powerful, powerful tool that God has given us, the value for truth. Truth still sets people free. It does. The ability to speak the truth in love goes a long way. Number five, keep confidences and stop gossiping. Now, I got to tell you, every time I talk about gossip, I get nervous as a pastor because I'll talk about gossip and you'll get in mind somebody that's gossiped. You'll have a clear picture. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But what you won't do is ever think you're a gossip. That's what happens. You understand that's what happens? I do it, you do it. We listen to somebody describe a bad dynamic, and we go, they should stop. There's a tendency to look out the window instead of in the mirror. Proverbs eleven thirteen: A gossip portrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man or a woman keeps a secret. You ever have somebody tell something they shouldn't have told? I've seen youth groups be splintered because somebody didn't keep a confidence. I've seen small groups get splintered. I've seen people be deeply hurt and have a hard time trusting. Let's talk about what gossip is. Gossip is discussing anything negative with someone who can't help solve the problem. Gossip is talking about a situation with somebody who is neither a part of the solution nor a part of the problem. In the Old Testament, Moses had a sister. Her name was Miriam. Miriam was a big help to the ministry that Moses had. She, while well, he was the preacher and the leader, she was the worship leader. And Miriam started thinking she knew how to do it better than Moses. And maybe she did. She may have been right. I don't know. All I know is she started talking about Moses to people behind Moses' back. And so the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to give her leprosy, bad disease. So God strikes Miriam down with leprosy. Over what? Adultery? Uh -uh. She killed someone. Nope. Gossip. When the Bible talks about gossip, it lists it in the New Testament, in the top seven sins that the Bible says, if you do this, you're in jeopardy of not inheriting heaven. Whoa. In the book of Titus, Paul says, in a church, when you come to a gossip, correct them once. And at the second time when you come to a gossip, ask them to leave the body. I didn't make any of that up. That's not my interpretation of those passages. That's what a big deal gossip is. So what happened to Miriam? Did she die of leprosy? No. Here's the other side of that coin. 
God says to Moses, here's what you got to do, Moses. I need you to pray and ask me to get rid of her leprosy. Think about that. She has created so much conflict for him. And then Moses has to ask God to get rid of her leprosy. I'm going to tell you something straight up. I'd struggle with that. I would. I know. I probably shouldn't be a pastor because I would struggle with that. But I would. So Moses prays and asks God. And in that, there's an act of contrition and forgiveness, grace offered. And God heals Miriam of leprosy. And, of course, she's pretty sorry about what she did at this point. She learned her lesson. But uh, Moses learned a lesson, too. And the truth is, is a lot of us in this room have been hurt deeply by gossip. And the story of Miriam and Moses is that gossip is bad. God takes it seriously. But at the same time, when you pray for that other person's healing, for their development, for their well-being, you actually can get free or at least get past some of the hurt that's coming to your life. Here's a cool phrase I've learned when somebody's trying to gossip around me. You might want to write this down. Why are you, here it is, telling me this? Sometimes when people come and tell me things, a wife wants to meet with me about marital counseling, but she doesn't want her husband to come. That's a flag. Now, it's appropriate occasionally, about one out of a thousand times. That's a red flag. Hey, pastor, we're having a marriage problem, but I don't want my husband to know I'm talking to you. Okay, so unless it's abuse, we probably should get everybody in the room, right? I get it. There's a lot of fear and stuff like that, but question I've learned to ask is, why are you telling me this? Now, when somebody's gossiping, that question gets to the core of the issue. Because often what's going on in gossip is the excitement of being in the know. So why are you telling me this? Because I'm just excited to know something other people don't know. I have a secret. Middle school again. Do you ever get out of middle school? Do do you? I, I don't know. But part of the reason people gossip is to tear others down and make themselves feel better to kind of get ahead of the story. So the question, why are you telling me? If you were sitting next to a gossip at your office, that question, hey, that's interesting. Why are you telling me this? You're asking, what do you want me to do with this information? What I found when you ask that gossiper that question three or four times, they don't come to you with that information anymore. You don't want to be in the loop of a gossiper. God doesn't like it, and it will bring pain to the relationships. Number six, here's a big one. Be committed to the relationship. If you want to be connected, you got to be committed. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. Here's the truth. You don't need a lot of friends. You do need a few good ones. You don't need a lot of friends, but you do need a few good ones. You don't need a lot of friends to make it in this world. One friendship is better than 10,000 acquaintances. And acquaintances aren't going to be there in a crisis, but a friend will. Every important close connection begins with a commitment. It's why at a wedding we look at a husband and a wife, and when I'm doing the ceremony, I say to them, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have blah, 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 blah? And they say, I do. I'm committed. And I look at her and I say, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have it a hold for this report? I do. Commitment. In our day and age, I believe commitment's generally at an all-time low. In fact, I think too many Christians have a commitment of convenience. 
They'll stay faithful, they'll stay committed, as long as it's safe and it doesn't involve risk, rejection, criticism. The truth is you always have two choices, commitment or fear. Commitment or fear. And I think God likes to break the bondage of fear. There's a time to break commitments. There is. But it's not as often as most of us are prone to. You need people in your life who will be good friends to you, but there's only one way you're going to get it. There's only one way you're going to get these kinds of people in your life who act these ways. You're going to have to be this kind of friend first. You want these people in your life like this? You're going to have to step up your game. It's the same principle I say to young men and young women who are single and they want to be married. I say, you have to become the kind of person, the kind of person you're looking for is interested in. You have to become the kind of person, the kind of person you're looking for is interested in. You have to become the kind of friend, the kind of friend you're interested in wants to be friends with. So you can't control other people, but let me tell you something. You can put some of these dynamics in your life, and I challenge you on the way home, when you get home, take your sermon notes and star one or two of them, put a one or two, and say, these are my priorities. This is how I'm going to increase connection. And I'm telling you, a little bit of effort here over time will make a dramatic difference. That's why I think, sincerely, you should get in a small group. And you won't go at it as directly as we did today, but you'll be bumping shoulders with imperfect people. And you will be in an environment where if good friendships can be made, they can be made. And I know this about most of us. Most of us could use another pretty good friend. And I don't know if your next small group will be the place that will happen. But I know if you don't throw yourself out there in a likely scenario where people share your values, they're at least aspiring to follow Jesus. It'll be very difficult for you to have new friendships and new engagements. And one of the things I'm praying for this church, two big goals for this year. God, would you make this year, 2017, the greatest year of spiritual growth for our church we've ever seen? I'm not asking God for bigger crowds, more money, more impact in the community. I just want us to grow better spiritually. I just want us to be more spiritually healthy. And the second thing I'm saying, God, would you help us like never before to operate as a family? So I've been talking a lot about our church family. I have my home family, and I have my church family. And it's in small groups that we do a, a major movement towards becoming the family that God has called us to do. You're not so busy that you can't make time to find a small group. And if child care was the issue, it's not anymore. All right? So let's take out our connect cards, and let's take a step or two together as a congregation. Every week I give you a chance to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. So next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Lord and Savior. Let's be clear. You don't make him anything. He already is, whether you acknowledge or not. But in this statement, what you're saying is, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. You're the Savior of the world, but I want you to be mine. You run the universe, but I'd like you to run my life. So I'm going to trust the work you did on the cross. I'm going to trust an empty tomb. I'm going to trust you with my eternal destiny. And so, Jesus, I come and I have nothing to bring, so I accept your work, and I ask you to wash away my sins. I ask you to lead my life. 
If you want to do that, would you check next step A and put the card in the offering bucket and we'll send you a little email about that this week and pray with you about the decision you're making. And in a minute when we bow our heads and pray together about what we've heard, I'm going to give you a chance to talk with God about the relationship you want with him. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. So we've got two people getting baptized in a moment. And they're going to go under the water representing that they're dying to self. And they're being raised to new life in Christ. And as the water washes off their body, it runs off their head, and down their shoulders, back into the pool. It's symbolic of the covering and the washing of our lives that Jesus does. Maybe you haven't been baptized since you gave your active commitment to Jesus. You put your faith in him. If not, and you want to talk about that, you begin that by checking next step D. And we'll talk about that. Answer your questions. Maybe, maybe baptism is right for you. How about next step C? This is the one I told you about earlier. What small group do you want to join? You have until the end of the service when the offering bucket comes around to figure that out. You can take the catalog home with you. I'd like to see you do that. And you can then come back next week and do it. And at some point in the middle of the week, these will be available online as well. You can jump right on there and do that. But take the catalog home if you don't know. Pray about it. Talk with your spouse and join a group. Maybe go to an event. Number, or letter D. Who would say, Ben, I have some work to do on my connection strategies. Pray with me. Uh, that's where I am. I have some work to do. So if you do too, let's be honest. Have some candor. Check the box. And we'll pray about it. Or next step B, who would say, Ben, send me the link for the marriage retreat. All right, listen, 50 bucks, and we'll pay for it if you can't. Your marriage is worth it. All right, let's pray about these things right now. Lord, I want to thank you that when we were unconnected from you, you initiated, you reached out, you told us the truth about us, you were considerate and loving and considered our faults. God, you don't give up on us. Thank you. Thank you for being the God who is connected. Right now, Lord, I lift up the men and women in this room that are saying to you, Jesus, wash away my sins. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Cover me by your shed blood. Lead my life. God, I'm praying that this will be the greatest year of spiritual growth this church has ever seen. And I'm praying, Lord, that more than ever before, we would come together as a family, imperfect, awkward, but committed to one another, where real love happens. Father, I want to celebrate those that are getting baptized today. We rejoice in how you are growing this family and how you're working in people's lives. Thank you, Lord. We ask for more. Lord, every person you send us, we'll do our best to treat them right, to love them, to speak truth, to embrace them, and to celebrate the good work you're doing in them. Lord, as we take our next steps, I pray we would be bold enough to follow through. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen. Amen.